You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. tonight. Um, We'll be reading from John 8, verses 2 through 12, so you can turn there in your pew Bibles or your Bible app, and please stand with me in body or spirit as we read God's Word together. This is from John 8, starting at verse 2. Early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So we're continuing in the Gospel of John, and uh, we are looking at uh, specific encounters uh, between Jesus, uh, who is the Son of God, um, and his love uh, with the Father and uh, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the way people like this woman caught in adultery encounter uh, eternal life. Eternal life, Jesus defines very clearly as to know uh, the Father and to know the Son, and to know to know means uh, intimate, familial knowledge. It's um, it's the kind of knowledge you have with the people who are closest to you to know them. And so, when uh, Jesus talks about eternal life, he's talking about this intimate knowledge that we get to have with the Father and the Son. And this angry mob of strangers who accost this woman and drag her out of the street 
uh, dissolves into the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit alone with her. So this is a dramatic encounter uh, of the Father, Son, and Spirit swooping in uh, and rescuing this woman from all this condemnation and anger. They, they brought her to the Son of God to be condemned, but they brought her to the wrong man. Um, because first he says, uh, I do not condemn you. Um, he justifies her, which uh, is an immediate act of declaration of forgiveness for past, present, and future sin. So uh, Paul says, there is therefore now no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It is the, the declaration of justification. But then after he does that, he says, now, another great gift of being a part of eternal life is you can go and sin no more. You actually now have the ability uh, to go and sin no more, which is, we call that growth and holiness, which is called sanctification. It's a really important distinction that Martin Luther thought was kind of the essence of, of the gospel between justification, which is this one-time act of no more condemnation forever, no matter what you do. But then also, once you're declared just and perfect, the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify you and make you grow in holiness. And these words of Jesus, go and sin no more, they actually propel her uh, into a life of holiness. So uh, it's this combination that Christianity asks of us um, is, is, uh, is kind of impossible in some ways. We're striving for radical holiness, go and sin no more, uh, but we have no judgment whatsoever because we know that we have been justified. So that's, that's a, a, a Christian uh, is a human being that is both striving intensely uh, for sexual integrity in this case, this woman, that's the kind of sin she was caught in, absolutely striving as hard as we can to be uh, righteous, holy, and at the same time, no judgment for anyone around us. And if you know people, you know that if you, this, the more you strive for holiness, the more difficult it is to not judge. And so we are, we are asked to do something that is almost impossible as believers, to be this community where we are striving so hard together uh, to be just and upright uh, and do the right thing. And yet at the same time, we know that we, know that we are the chief of sinners, that uh, we cannot uh, condemn anyone. There is no more condemnation. And so we have no judgment for people because of that. So it's this amazing combination, justification, sanctification, no condemnation, go and sin no more. So first of all, uh, justification. This, uh, sadly, is not in the earliest manuscripts of John. So if you have a Bible, it might show you those brackets. It says this is not in the earliest manuscripts. Manuscripts just means that uh, we have thousands of copies of the New Testament from very soon after it was written. Uh, they are called manuscripts. And some of the very earliest ones we have don't contain the story. So it's very confusing. Uh, it seems to be put in later by a scribe. Um, but most scholars believe, uh, even the skeptical ones, that it is an eyewitness account because uh, writing in the sand two times doesn't make any sense if you're going to make up a story. It, it's unexplained. It's a strange detail. It's one of the most perplexing details of the whole New Testament. So why would you make that up if you're making up a story? And also, it sounds exactly like something Jesus would do. So we don't know exactly if it should be here, but I, I do love that the author um, that compiled all this to, stuff together put it right between uh, I am the, ri uh, the river of living water and I am the light of the world. And in between that, this passage, this story. So um, it's an eyewitness account, uh, not in the earliest manuscripts, 
But it really did happen. And it says in verse 3 that he's teaching in the temple, and then they brought to him a woman who had been caught, caught in the act of adultery, and they placed her in the midst. Um, that, I imagine she's being pushed from behind. Uh, she's in her nightshirt. She's thrown to the ground. And then they say in verse 4, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Um, and if, if she's caught in the act of adultery, that means there were multiple people who caught her, because you had to have more than one witness. That means that they actually were coming into the room in the middle of it, which is also known as entrapment. Um, and um, the reason they entrapped her is because in verse 6, they wanted to bring a charge against Jesus. Because they, they want to show how soft he is about the law, that he doesn't care about the law, um, that uh, he's a pushover when it comes to the law. And, um, and so it's actually, as he will tell them later, it's not so much that he's soft about the law, it's that, that they are soft about the law. Because where is the man? I mean, there obviously takes two people to have an affair. Where is the guy? It says in the law of Deuteronomy very clearly, they should both be there. Where is the trial? There's no trial. There are no clear witnesses. And yet they have the gall to invoke the law of Moses. In verse 5, it says, The law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. The law of Moses did not command that. Okay, this is an important part of the law of Moses. It, it did allow for that as the highest penalty in extreme cases. In an extreme case. And we know from most ancient Near Eastern laws, like the law of Moses, that these literal punishments were very rarely, if ever, enacted. They were mostly symbolizing the gravity of the offense. So some scholars say that probably was never actually done in all of Israel's history, uh, the stoning of someone caught in adultery. But they are there to expose how weak Jesus is and that he doesn't care about the law. And so what does he do in response to their question? Uh, it says in verse 6, he does this perplexing thing where he bends down. And uh, there's a big crowd around them. The woman's in the middle. Uh, they're uh, surrounding him. And uh, he just slowly bends down maybe in a catcher's, uh, like a catcher's, you know, formation. And uh, he uses his finger. Interestingly, in the, um, in the Old Testament, it often says that the finger of God is what wrote the law, the very finger of God. So here's the finger of God, and he's writing things in the ground. Some people think that he wrote the ten words. So the ten commandments are sometimes called the ten words because they're just ten Hebrew symbols. So some people think he wrote down the ten words. Uh, others think, and I think this is probably what he wrote, uh, is uh, that he wrote down Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man commits adultery, he and the woman must die. And maybe even underlined man. Um, but either way, we don't know what he wrote. It's the only thing he ever wrote, and we don't know what he wrote. But we do know that in verse 7, he is, while he's writing, they're continuing to attack him. And so uh, they're continuing to yell at him. Uh, prosecute him. They're really not that interested in the woman, actually. They're certainly not interested in protection, which is what that law of Moses is all about, protecting the weak. Um, so at some point, he stands up. He's been writing uh, on the ground. Just his, his poise is unbelievable here. I mean, just uh, to slowly bend down and write and then to stand back up. And when he stands back up, uh, I can imagine, like, them backing away from the words, because sometimes words are just so powerful um, that they make you step back. And um, 
Then he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. After having written down potentially either the Ten Commandments or Deuteronomy 22.22. Now he's not saying um, that adultery is not that bad. He's not saying that um, you can't ever judge anyone because you're also sinful. That's not what he's saying. There is a place for justice. The Old Testament is very clear about justice. Do good, seek justice, correct oppression, uh, plead the widow's cause. Um, the, the Old Testament loves justice. So he's not saying don't ever do justice, but he's saying check yourself when you're eager to dole out judgment on people. Uh, we always underestimate our sin and always overestimate the other person's sin. So be very careful about trying to deal out justice. And then it says in verse 8 that he bends down again and writes on the ground. Another thing he just would never make up. He, he does it again. He writes on the ground again. And, um, and R.C. Sproul is a theologian that I, I like. Um, he thinks that what he wrote on the ground was Mary, Junia, Herodias, Susanna, Phoebe, all the names of the women that these guys uh, had transgressed, potentially, or even looked at, maybe that day, uh, in an improper way. Um, but it, whatever he wrote, uh, it drove them away. Uh, it, it made them realize that there was no one there without sin, uh, that there was nobody they, that could cast that stone. It says in verse 9, they slowly began to file away one by one. And they had wanted to bring her there to make a spectacle of her. And it ends up that they are the ones who become the spectacle. They are the ones under the judgment of God uh, who were shown to be wanting. That they actually don't understand justice at all. And then Jesus turns to her and says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And he says, neither do I condemn you. And I think he's telling her, do you see how similar they are to you? Do you realize that they are not all that different from you? And how much grace you need and how much grace they need? And if anyone falls at the feet of Jesus, he says to us, not guilty. Uh, it doesn't matter what we've done. He says, not guilty. If you fall at his feet. In the court of ultimate justice, right after you've done it. This is, this is um, almost minutes after she has done this terrible thing. Right after she does it, not guilty. And she doesn't make any reparations. She doesn't do penance. She doesn't have to grovel. She doesn't have to ask. She doesn't have to make up for anything she did yet. Without any of that stuff happening, he says, not guilty. In the court of God, there is no more condemnation in Christ. All your sins, past, present, and future, have all been forgiven. And you stand in the presence of me and my Father, perfect holiness and justice, absolutely clean and pure. Purity is defined as Jesus comes and says you're pure. That's what purity is. And he, she is pure in the eyes of God. Um, so that's justification. Um, sanctification is the gift of freedom from sin, of this woman's uh, instincts being changed, her habits being changed, her heart being changed. I mean, her heart has been changed forever from this point forward. I can't imagine she would ever want to do what she did because her heart has been so changed by this encounter with God's justifying grace. He says in verse 11, uh, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So this is point two, sanctification. He doesn't say 
if you stop sinning, then I'm not going to condemn you. That's what a lot of Christians think. That's what you might think about yourself. Uh, we especially think that about ourselves. We might be gracious to other people, but we often think about ourselves. Uh, he will not condemn me as long as I stop sinning. So I've got to stop sinning first, and then I will get forgiveness. Um, but he says, I don't condemn you anymore. So therefore, you can actually start to fight sin. It's a completely different thing. <clears throat> and notice that he does call it sin. Uh, he does call it sin, and it is sexual sin, which we today do not have much of a category for, so this is hard. And especially when someone who's a victim uh, like her, uh, it's hard to us to even think about sin in that way, uh, sexual sin. But, but every human being is sinful, the Bible says. And uh, that is in the best sense of we are all equal in the eyes of God and our brokenness and our self-destructiveness. And that sexuality is a big part of what it means to be a human being. I mean, these things go deep into us when you talk about things of this nature. Her adultery. There was something inside of her that drove her to that. There are deep, unwanted desires that we all have that afflict us. And that's even the most holy people that you know. Someone you could never imagine struggling with this at all is absolutely afflicted by unwanted desires. Um, there, there's only one angle. I always say this in our newcomer class. Um, I wish I had a pen right now with me. Um, but there's only one angle at which a thing can stand, you know? And if there, there's, there's only one angle that's uh, completely 90 degrees. Any other angle, even one degree off, and it falls. Everything um, will fall. There is this one angle uh, at which we are right. We are the truth. We're following the truth, righteousness, sexually. And it is objective, biblical truth about sexuality. It's not that hard to discover in the Bible. It's Genesis 2.20. He makes Adam and Eve, and he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then in the Song of Songs, that, that verse is expanded upon. It's like double-clicking on that verse. It expands into an entire song, love poetry, about Adam and Eve essentially in the garden again. And then Jesus uh, takes that and appropriates that. He mentions that verse twice, Genesis 2.20. He says, that actually applies to me and the church. And the book of Revelation, you see that same idea applied again. So this is from the whole sweep of scripture. And it's saying that is biblical truth about sexuality. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That is what God wants us to strive for. Now, all of us fall short of that mark, of that truth. We, are all, we all fall over, every single one of us. And people often think that marriage uh, solves that problem. Like once you get married, you're at the 90 degree angle for good, and that is not the case whatsoever. A lot of even marital intimacy can be selfish, can be coerced even, can be very unequally enjoyed by the two parties. So being married doesn't uh, solve this problem. It's premarital sex, postmarital sex, same sex, pornography, selfish sex, uh, polyamory, whatever, all these different angles, it doesn't matter. Um, the thing that you feel worst about, maybe an unplanned pregnancy that's terminated even, there is grace for all of that. There's only one angle at which we can stand, but there's grace that covers all of it. Somebody in the Discovering Salem class called it the protractor of sexuality, which I am not a huge fan of, but it does capture the essence of what it is. So I'll call it the protractor of sexuality, but the, on top of the protractor, I write grace, because grace 
covers everything. There is therefore now no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And that covers all of that sin. Uh, a great writer, British writer named Francis Bufford, he wrote a book called Unapologetic. He says that Christianity is an anti-perfectionistic, anti-judgmental religion. And we need to especially remember that when it comes to sexuality, because that's a place where Christians get really, really judgy. And we have to be incredibly gentle with each other in this area. If, we're, if somebody shares that with you, uh, you've got to hold that uh, very gently, very tenderly in, in your hands, because that takes a lot of bravery, a lot of courage. And we need to know, I mean, this is why having a very deep view of sin is so healthy and so important. Uh, because when you have a very deep view of sin, you know that you cannot judge anybody. That Jesus says, uh, whoever looks at a person with lust in their heart, with lustful intent, has committed adultery already. And so if you have a view of sin that like, is very superficial, that sin is just these certain bad actions that you do every other day or every week or something like that, uh, then you're going to be really judgmental of people. Because you're going to think, well, you do this well, and they don't do that well, and so there's this judgment there. Or you're going to feel inferior to people. Uh, but if you understand that sin is this deep thing that comes out of the heart, that Jesus says, it's not what goes into a person that makes them sinful, it's what comes out of the person, out of the heart, comes all these evil thoughts. And if you have a very deep view of sin, then you will not judge people. You will not judge people. And you will understand that you need as much grace as they do. In fact, uh, the older I get, this is a paradox, but the older I get, the more I realize I need grace. You would think that the older you get, uh, the more you would uh, think that you can do it, that your sin is decreasing, uh, that every day you beat another challenge. And so you would think that the older one gets, uh, the less we need God's grace. But the fact is, it's exactly the opposite of that. Because who walks away first? Who walked away first? It was the older ones. Because as soon as you wrote that name down, they're like, okay, I'm out of here. I have no leg to stand on. I have no sexual integrity that uh, I can possibly condemn this woman. And so when I'm 53, looking back at when I was 21, I'm like, there is a lot more stuff in there in my heart that is not pretty, that I had no idea about when I was 21. Um, and when I'm going to be 85, if I'm still alive, I'm going to look back when I'm 53 and say, I had no idea when I was 53, uh, the amount of stuff that was in my heart that had to have been forgiven by God. And when I'm in glory, I'm going to look back and say, I never had any clue about what I need to be forgiven for. And yet, it's absolutely forgiven. There's no more condemnation in Christ. Um, one of my favorite scenes in The Lord of the Rings, love The Lord of the Rings, this is in the first book. And Frodo is the hero, he's a hobbit. Gandalf is a wizard, they're talking. They're in the mines of Moria, they're um, hiking uh, towards Mordor. And they think they hear their arch nemesis Gollum following them. Gollum is like this horrible creature that's always trying to get the ring of power from Frodo. And so Frodo says to Gandalf, it is a pity that Bilbo did not kill Gollum when he had a chance. Bilbo is uh, Frodo's uncle who could have killed Gollum at one point. It is a pity that Bilbo did not kill Gollum when he had a chance. Frodo's really mad. And then Gandalf says, pity, it was pity that stayed his hand. And he says, many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Be too not eager, hobbit, to deal out death in the name of justice. And we do not do justice well. 
the way uh, we treat people of uh, different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds. If you just look at the way the justice system works, we, we do not do justice well. We favor people like us. We discriminate against people like us, uh, not like us. So justice is really, really hard for us. As Gandalf said to Frodo, um, human beings, uh, we, we need to try to do justice, but it's hard. We can't cast stones, but there is one who actually could have cast a stone. Um, the only one in the whole world that could have ever cast a stone, that had never had a single impure sexual thought, that, had, that lived with absolute sexual integrity. The one person that could have cast that stone was the one person standing right there in front of her. And he did not cast that stone. In fact, it never occurred to him to cast that stone. And it wasn't because he didn't care about the law. It wasn't that he didn't care about sexual integrity. He cared about them more than anyone has ever lived. But he wanted to be stoned for her because he wanted to pay the price for her and give her all the grace he possibly could because he wanted her so badly to experience the eternal life that he had with the Father and the Spirit. And so... Um, the reason I know that is because he did this uh, on the night that he was betrayed. So he, he wanted to show us the full depth of his love on the very night that we did something far worse than adultery, where we betrayed him, um, betrayed the Son of God. On that night, Uh, he took bread on the night that he was betrayed, right before he was about to be killed and crucified and stoned. Stoning was the judicial execution uh, in the Torah, in the Jewish legal system. The Romans wouldn't let them stone people. So instead of stoning, guess what the Romans did? They crucified people. And so they wouldn't let the Jewish people stone Jesus. They wanted to crucify him instead. The most horrible death penalty ever invented. And Jesus said, I want... I am going to be crucified for you. I am laying down my life for you. I have the authority to lay my life down. Nobody's taking my life from me. I'm eagerly giving it up for you. On the night he was betrayed, he said that. And then he took a cup. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. I eagerly give up my life so that you would not be condemned, so that you would have life. And I imagine the woman being there at that Seder meal that night. I, I, I bet she was there. I bet she had followed him. I bet she never went back to that town. I bet she stayed with him and uh, was there the night where he served this meal. So whenever we eat the bread, whenever we drink from the cup, uh, we are once again proclaiming uh, the character of the Son of God um, to the world, to ourselves right now. Hard for me to believe it. It's almost too good to be true but it's actually too good not to be true. Like it could not have been invented by a human being. So let me pray for us um, to be able to receive just the power of this sacramental meal. Uh, Father, we pray, uh, pray that you would shower us with grace. Help us to hear the words, no condemnation, whatever we've done. And help us to pursue righteousness. Lord, and to never give up um, if we are afflicted even tonight by unwanted desires, by things that we don't want to do. Um, I pray we would know that we are still not condemned. And we keep fighting and hel helping others uh, fight their sin. Uh, we need help. Lord, have mercy on us. Let this be uh, a springboard into being helped. Uh, let this meal convince us of, of our belovedness again.
that we're the beloved disciples, each one of us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, let me get the instructions. Remember, we love these rascals.